I want you to hit me as hard as you can. This warrior poet has given us some of the most epic, intense, earth-shattering cinematic experiences of all time. He's a beautiful madman who is blessed with many talents and cursed with many demons. Empty bottles and Oscars collect dust on this guy's shelf. Mel Gibson, a man who truly was the king of Hollywood until one fateful night back in good old 2006. But it, it wasn't so good for Mel. It saw him take a fall that turned him from the king of Hollywood into the punchline of Hollywood. But a king only stays down for so long. Resurrecting himself, not in a blasphemous way though, to show the world why he was king to begin with. Some say that Mel Gibson has made a comeback some say his redemption is impossible, and his past sins will forever haunt his screen presence. And some just ask a simple question, and that question is, what the f happened to Mel Gibson? You want to see crazy? I'll tell you. <laughs> but to truly understand what the f happened to Mel Gibson, we must start at the beginning, and the beginning began when he was born on his birthday. 1956, New York, not Australia. He, he, he made it there later, eventually. Yeah, that's right, Mad Max is American. In his teens, he discovered two passions in his life, acting and alcohol. Two things that would go on to transform his entire life and career. And this young man who had a taste for the drinky was soon making a name for himself on the stage and in the bars. Of course, Mel Gibson would not have to wait long to find his breakout role, because in 1979 he was cast as Max in Mad Max. The 23-year-old Mel Gibson was paid $15,000 to star in this groundbreaking film that truly transformed independent cinema and Australian cinema, and how we film car chases, and how we watch car chases. There is an unconfirmed rumor that Mel Gibson was cast because he showed up to the audition with a beat-up face because he got in a bar fight the night before, but George Miller and the casting director have denied this. But the rumor still persists, and I'm gonna keep it going. It tr it's true, it really happened. Even though the people who were there said it didn't. The New York Times called this one ugly and incoherent. Even the one and only Stephen King, a man who embraces and champions the weird, initially called this film a turkey. And not the good kind of turkey, the bad kind. Of course, sometimes, like a fine wine, a film just needs to age a bit before it can be truly appreciated. But over the years, the critics became more fond of this picture eventually calling it a showcase of creativity and grit. And the New York Times, the paper that originally called it ugly and incoherent, eventually wound up putting this movie that's ugly and incoherent on its list of the best films of all time. Then Mel Gibson was in a movie called Tim, where he played Tim. Gibson would win Best Actor at the 21st Annual Australian Film Institute Awards for his performance in this film. And critics really appreciated Gibson's performance, saying that he didn't resort to any cliched techniques in portraying the developmentally impaired title character, Tim. Then came Attack Force Z in 1981, where Mel Gibson himself called it so bad it's funny. And those are the best kind of movies. Then he was directed by the great Peter Weir in the World War I drama Gallipoli. The film cost a reported 2.8 million, and that was a record for Australia at that time. And the film was quite successful in its native Australia, pulling in 11.7 million in the box office, making it the highest grossing Australian release ever. The film Gallipoli would go on to be nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Foreign Language Film. I remember them speaking English 
It would also clean up at the AFI Awards. Not the American Film Institute, rather the Australian Film Institute Awards, where it won Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor for Mel Gibson, and Best Supporting Actor for the guy who's not Mel Gibson, and Best Screenplay and Best Cinematography, Gallipoli. It's like one of the best World War I movies ever, except for Wonder Woman. Morning, Acto! Mel Gibson would then return to his iconic character of Max in Mad Max 2, or as it was released in the States, The Road Warrior. In the United States, the film was picked up for distribution by Warner Brothers, who changed the title of the movie from Mad Max 2 to The Road Warrior, as not to deter people who hadn't seen the original. And no, you, you don't need to see the original, but you should. Many people, I'm one of them, consider this film to be not just one of the best sequels of all time, not just one of the best post-apocalyptic films of all time, not one of the best Mel Gibson films of all time, but one of the best films ever of all time, ever all, of, of all of the time. It appears on most of the big-name film magazine's best films ever made lists, and in 2015 it was named the number one action film of all time by Rolling Stone magazine. Critics loved the film, saying that it was exactly what they wanted from a Mad Max sequel. Bigger, better, faster, dirtier. With one critic saying that this is one of the most relentlessly aggressive movies ever made. Gibson would re-team with director Peter Weir for the Australian romantic drama A Year of Living Dangerously. Gibson and the filmmakers received lots of death threats making this film, but Mel Gibson didn't care. The film was not a financial success, pulling in just 10 million in the United States and 3 million in Australia. But those New York Times, they wrote of Gibson saying, if this film doesn't make him an international star, then nothing will. He possesses both the necessary talent and the screen presence. 1984 would see Mel Gibson star in three underachieving films, but they're still all right. He would appear opposite Anthony Hopkins in The Bounty, which was like the fourth remake of Mutiny on The Bounty. The film would cost 20 million to make and only recoup 18.3 million, but it did receive praise for its historical accuracy. You take your hands off him! Take your hands off him now! Get your hands off him! Now! He would then appear opposite Sissy Spacek in The River. The film received mixed reviews from critics who praised Sissy Spacek's performance, but criticized Mel Gibson's performance, saying that they felt that the up-and-coming actor was miscast in this and the film would lose money at the box office, only making 11 million off its 18 million budget. His final film in the year 1984 was opposite Diane Keaton, Mrs. Sofal. This is a really interesting true life prison escape movie, but it was Mel Gibson's third misfire of the year at the box office, only pulling in 4.3 off an $11 million budget. So he went back to being Mad Max in Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome in 1985. This film was financially successful, pulling in $40 million worldwide off its $10 million budget. Critics were again enthralled with this Mad Max film, with Roger Ebert calling it one of the best films of that year, and praising the creative action fight sequences, which would go on to inspire Tupac and Dr. Dre. Although some critics did find that the second half of the movie was a bit of a letdown. But whatever, it's Thunderdome, biatch! By this point, Mel Gibson was still finding his way in the movie world, he still didn't have that true hit film that would turn him into more than just the dude from Mad Max. And then came Lethal Weapon. Director Richard Donner was the one responsible for casting Mel Gibson in the iconic role of Martin Riggs, simply because he wanted to work with him. 
and the film's casting director suggested Danny Glover, and the two had instant chemistry. Mel Gibson said that he took the script because the action was secondary to the characters, and in that scene where Mel Gibson holds a gun to his head threatening suicide, the gun was loaded with a real blank in the chamber. Gibson requested this to add realism to the performance. You didn't need to do that, Mel. The film received high praise upon its release with the critics hailing it as a vivid visceral reminder of just how exciting action films can be. And later on in the future, we would look back at Lethal Weapon as the film that redefined action movies. The film took in a massive box office, eventually making over 120 worldwide. Have a nice day. Mel Gibson would take a break from ass-kicking to star as a drug dealer trying to go straight. Opposite Michelle Pfeiffer and Kurt Russell in Tequila Sunrise in 1988. The film was financially successful. Then in 1989, the entire Lethal Weapon crew would reunite for a sequel cleverly titled Lethal Weapon 2, because it's the second one. Critical reaction to the film was high. They said that the humor and most importantly, the chemistry between everyone in the cast propelled the film past its relatively thin plot. Lethal Weapon 2 pulled in 228 million worldwide. That's over 100 million than Lethal Weapon 1. And all that money guaranteed there were going to be more additions to this fantastic action comedy franchise. Then came the year 1990. By the turn of that decade, the 90s, Gibson's star was firmly established as he would appear in three fairly successful films. He would appear opposite Goldie Hawn in the action comedy Bird on a Wire. Even though the film was not a critical hit, it did find success at the box office, pulling in $136 million off a $20 million budget. Next up, Mel Gibson would form a lifelong friendship with co-star Robert Downey Jr. in the Vietnam War set film Air America. The film received some criticism, being advertised as a light-hearted buddy action comedy, yet the actual film is very heavy on anti-war themes and is, is kind of dramatic. But it only made $34 million off a $35 million budget. Mel Gibson would finish 1990 off by starring as one of the greatest literary characters of all time, Hamlet. The director sought out Gibson for the lead role after seeing his near-suicide scene in Lethal Weapon. And he was like, yeah, that's kind of like Hamlet. Mel Gibson would found his production company, Icon Productions, as a way to raise funds to make this film, because no studio was willing to finance something written by some guy named William Shakespeare. Warner Brothers eventually helped out as a way to get Mel Gibson to agree to do Lethal Weapon 3. Many people thought Mel Gibson's performance as Hamlet was strong and intelligent, but it only made 20 million at the box office. And be a villain! Then in 1992, because of Hamlet, they got Mel Gibson to do Lethal Weapon 3. Gibson, Glover, Donner, and Joe Pesci all returned for this awesome threequel. The film managed a franchise best, with $320 million worldwide off just a $35 million budget. Everybody continued to find the chemistry between all of the actors something magical. But it was kind of obvious that the series was running out of fresh ideas. But that doesn't mean the movie isn't awesome. Nineteen ninety-two would also see Mel Gibson star in Forever Young. The film received mixed reviews upon its release, some calling it gooey, which is great if you're describing a chocolate chip cookie, but not so good when describing a time-traveling romantic drama. Although audiences seem to love it, giving it an A minus on one of those websites that rates movies. 
and it made a healthy $126 million. Then Mel Gibson would take a crack behind the camera this time, directing the 1993 drama Man Without a Face. Mel Gibson took on the lead role after exhausting the search for another actor willing to take the lead. He wanted Robin Williams to do it. He said no. He wanted Tom Hanks to do it. He said no. He wanted Jeff Bridges to do it. No. Harrison Ford. No. Kevin Costner. No. So Mel Gibson was like, all right, I'll direct and star in this thing. Boom. And he did. And he did it without a face on his face. Reviews were fairly positive for this film, everyone praising the first-time director. And the film would go on to make $36 million. I'd like a hole. I don't understand. Mel Gibson would then re-team with his Lethal Weapon director, Richard Donner, for the big-screen adaptation of Maverick. Jodie Foster and Mel Gibson became very close friends while making this movie and she would eventually become one of the few who would never turn her back on Mel. The film is very lighthearted and charming, and you can definitely tell that the cast is having a great time making it. And audiences from around the world enjoyed this Western, as it would gross over $183 million. <laughs> Then Mel Gibson would become the director again, playing the true-life Scottish hero William Wallace in the Academy Award-winning Braveheart in 1995. Mel Gibson originally had no intention of playing the lead role, he just wanted to focus on directing, but Paramount Studios told him that they would not finance the movie unless he put his pretty face in it, so he agreed. Gibson is a man who likes to have fun on set, and because of the heaviness and seriousness and sadness and violence of the film, oftentimes Mel Gibson would direct while doing an Elmer Fudd voice to lighten the mood. That's right, best director went to Elmer Fudd that year. Well, like most directors, I suppose what I really want to do is act. But, uh... <laughs> And Mel Gibson is one of those filmmakers who went to film school on set as an actor, basically watching and observing his directors to, to learn a few things. And that's why he became such a talented filmmaker, because he learned from the best. Braveheart would go on to make $213 million worldwide off a $72 million budget. And at the time, everybody's dad and all of the critics, they loved this movie, praising both Mel Gibson's direction and performance. But some people had issues with the movie being hella historically inaccurate, but they still praised its cinematic value. Braveheart would go on to be nominated for 10 Oscars and would win four, including Best Director for Mel Gibson, Best Cinematography, Best Makeup, and Best Picture of the Year. Braveheart. After a brief cameo in the live-action Casper, Mel Gibson would become a Disney character cartoon, lending his voice to John Smith in the definitely 100% historically accurate Pocahontas. And Pocahontas, well, she made $346 million at the box office. Then Mel Gibson would team up with Ron Howard for the excellent film Ransom, about a ransom. Mel Gibson would receive a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor for his performance in this one. Critics found this one to be a top-notch, thrilling thriller. And this ransom had a worldwide intake of $309 million. 1997 would see Mel Gibson have uncredited cameos in the film Father's Day and Fairy Tale: A True Story. But his big output that year came by way of teaming up with Julia Roberts, Patrick Stewart, and his lethal weapon director Richard Donner for the film Conspiracy Theory. And Jared Leto isn't the only one who gives his co-stars rats. Mel Gibson sent Julia Roberts a freeze-dried gift-wrapped rat because he's totally not crazy. The film pulled in $137 million off an $80 million budget. 
critics did have a problem with the premise and the runtime, but everybody appreciated Mel Gibson's performance. And I heard a rumor that the opening scene where he's driving around in a taxi just ranting about conspiracy theories was all improvisation. I mean, George Bush knew what he was saying when he said New World Order. Remember those pretty little words, New World Order? 1998, we would see Mel Gibson's suit back up as Martin Riggs, alongside Danny Glover, Joe Pesci, and director Richard Donner for a potentially final Lethal Weapon movie, Lethal Weapon 4. But critics found the fourth film suffered from the law of diminishing returns, saying that it was still enjoyable, just not equal footing with its predecessors. But Jet Li's awesome in it. Mel Gibson gets to fight Jet Li. It made $285 million at the box office. Hey, you know what? Payback is a bitch. And Payback is also a Mel Gibson movie. And at first, this movie Payback had a darker tone, but then the studio edited and put out a trailer featuring mostly the funnier moments of the movie, and they loved it. So the director was fired, and they delayed the film a year to lighten it up a bit. But even in a pre-Snyder Cut world, director Brian Helgeland was actually given the opportunity to release his director's cut of the film several years later. His version titled Payback. Straight up, the director's cut. But the theatrical cut did do quite well, pulling in $161 million, with critics praising Mel Gibson's performance as the key to the entire film, which can be said about, like, every movie Mel Gibson's in. Then Mel Gibson would voice himself in a 1999 episode of The Simpsons, episode Beyond Blunderdome. Then came the year 2000, the new Millennium and Mel Gibson would take this millennium by storm, some of the time. Starting off with the amazing stop-motion animated film, Chicken Run. The film is actually a spoof of The Great Escape, which is why my grandfather liked this movie. I was like, why do you like Chicken Run? I, I didn't get it until years later. Critics absolutely loved the film, saying that it had something for everyone, and they praised all of the voice acting. In the slapstick comedy, it's brilliant. In the animation, it's beautiful. The action sequences are spectacular. And it's just downright hilarious. Chicken Run was produced for $45 million and made $224 million worldwide. And still, to this date, it's still the highest grossing stop motion animated film ever made. Mel Gibson would then next produce and star in the whodunit the Million Dollar Hotel. Mel Gibson himself even accidentally let his true thoughts come out about the movie. He said, I thought it was boring as a dog's ass. And he even fought to prevent the film from being released in the United States. But let's just say the Million Dollar Hotel didn't make a million dollars at the box office. The Million Dollar Hotel. Even with the misfire that is Million Dollar Hotel, the year 2000 is one of Mel Gibson's best professionally. With Chicken Run proving to be a massive family hit, Mel Gibson would still have two more massive hits yet to come. The first would be the revolutionary war action thriller The Patriot. Mel Gibson got $25 million to be in this one. The film cost a reported $100 million to produce and only made $113 back domestically, but international audiences took to this distinctly American tale from a German director, giving it an additional $101 million for its final worldwide take of just over $215 million. Of course, those pesky critics were not huge fans of this historically inaccurate, over-the-top violent tale of revenge and patriotism. And some controversy came when it was discovered that a fake film critic had been giving this rave reviews. They don't need a fake film critic, I'll give it rave reviews, it's, it's, it's awesome. This film is actually shot beautifully and the chemistry between Mel Gibson and Heath Ledger, it's wonderful. I loved this film back when I was a kid in good old the year 2000, Anno Domini, and I re-watched The Patriot last Independence Day, July 4th, and I don't know if it was just the nostalgic kick in my brain, but I still loved it. It's like a more fun, silly, Americanized Braveheart. 
Mel Gibson would finish the year 2000 off with a film that would ultimately become his second highest grossing film to date. The Nancy Myers directed What Women Want. And you know what? I'm gonna be honest here, this may be my favorite romantic comedy ever. At least in a guilty pleasure kind of way. Critics found that Gibson and Hunt made a charming pair. They had what you call chemistry. I remember seeing this one in a packed theater opening weekend and every joke landed perfectly. Mel Gibson was nominated for a Golden Globe Award for Best Actor Motion Picture Comedy, or Musical, but it's not a musical. And pretty recently, this film got a gender-bending remake with What Men Want. But yeah, What Women Want, it was a massive hit, making $374 million. Two, three. Ah! Oh! 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 Mel Gibson would then return to the battlefield in the movie We Were Soldiers, directed by his Braveheart screenwriter, Randall Wallace. No relation to William Wallace. And the author of the book, Hal Moore, who is played by Mel Gibson in the movie, said that every damn Hollywood movie got the Vietnam War wrong, and that this is the first one to get it right. And yeah, this movie kicks your ass. I remember watching it and feeling like it was just non-stop battle sequences the whole time. Which is a good thing. The film would pull in 115 million dollars worldwide. Then Mel Gibson would play a priest who discovers crop circles on his farm in the M. Night Shyamalan mega-hit, Signs. Signs received overwhelmingly positive reviews from critics who praised M. Night Shyamalan as a filmmaker who mastered building suspense and giving audiences the chills. And yeah, this film would pull in $408 million becoming Mel Gibson's highest grossing film to date. And his face isn't even on the poster. I saw this thing like four times in the theaters. It's, it's great. I know it has its flaws, but you know, f it. <laughs> Mel Gibson would produce and appear in the 2003 musical crime comedy, The Singing Detective looking like he's never looked before. And this one stars Robert Downey Jr. 2003 Robert Downey Jr., mind you. And at the time, nobody wanted to hire him due to his very public legal issues stemming from his drug habit. And when Mel Gibson purchased the rights to the singing detective, he found that it would be perfect for his Air America co-star and friend. Problem was no insurance company would ensure the notoriously problematic Robert Downey Jr. So what did Mel Gibson do? He insured Robert Downey Jr. with his own money, agreeing to pay the studio back for any lost funds if Robert Downey Jr. started acting like Robert Downey Jr. But Downey maintained himself on set, being truly professional the whole time. And thus began the resurrection of Robert Downey Jr., which ultimately led to him being cast as Iron Man. So, without Mel Gibson, it isn't out of the realm of possibility to assume that there would be no MCU. Because if Iron Man didn't work, the entire franchise would have been a non-starter. And Iron Man worked because of Robert Downey Jr. And Robert Downey Jr. worked because Mel Gibson was a good friend. As with other years that may have seen some professional failures, Gibson wasn't down for long as he would helm the still reigning champ of the highest grossing independent film of all time, The Passion of the Christ. Entertainment Weekly named this film the number one most controversial movie ever made. And this was the highest grossing R-rated movie worldwide at the box office until Deadpool came along and beat it. That's right, Deadpool beat Jesus. The film used the dead Hebrew language Aramaic 
and the cast does an amazing job. Jim Caviezel, who played Jesus, was so amazing that he was struck by lightning twice while filming. I'm just saying. And quite a few people in the cast and crew, including the man who played Judas, actually converted to Christianity on set. Just saying. Mel Gibson was so passionate about the passion that he paid for it himself. It's 45 million dollars out of his own pocket. And he did this because he wanted complete artistic control and no studio was willing to touch this. And once the film was complete, before anyone even saw it, it was already getting accusations of anti-Semitism. Of course, resulting in Mel Gibson having to self-distribute the film. Because he didn't want to put any studio in that position of intense criticism. So, the film was heavily marketed by church groups. And that's actually how I saw it. It was church at the movies. And yeah, I actually remember sitting there on the front row, mind you. The front row of the Passion of the Christ. And the ushers were passing out Kleenexes to the audience before the movie even began. So I knew I was in for a wild ride. And it truly was. I mean, it doesn't matter what your faith is, this film is intense. So intense that some call it a two hour long snuff film but many people found the film to be a moving, emotional experience, and the cinematography is, is beautiful. It's, it's just an extremely well-made film, like it or not. And audiences seemed to love it as it was rewarded an A-plus cinema score, if you give a crap about cinema scores. And this movie would make $612 million. Gibson has a very interesting directing approach. He kind of just like takes a cinema bat and just bangs you on the head for hours and hours and hours. And, uh, you know, that's how he expresses his artistic vision. And you know what? Sometimes, most of the time, it works. And such is the case with Apocalypto. Mel Gibson would return to the world of forgotten languages for the Mayan set Apocalypto in 2006. The idea for the film was to always feel like one long chase sequence, but the original concept was going to be one long car chase sequence. But eventually that turned into a man running through the jungle. Mel Gibson again financed the film through his Icon Productions, but this time, with the success of The Passion of the Christ, he had no problems finding major studio distribution for this film. The film received fairly solid reviews saying that it was a brilliantly filmed epic. Yet the excessive violence, which is a staple of Mel Gibson-directed films, was a little too much for some. But there's no such thing as too much violence in a Mel Gibson movie. Get that through your heads, people! non-violently get it through your heads. Yes, Apocalypto is as intense as they come. It could have only been made by a madman like Mel Gibson. Every single scene in this movie is pretty much a climax. In every single scene, something epic happens. Even the lighthearted comedy scenes are epic. Then came the infamous DUI. Few events in Hollywood have gone down in history and remained as prevalent as the night of July 26, 2006, when Mel Gibson was pulled over by a Los Angeles Sheriff's Department deputy for suspicion of driving under the influence, while speeding in his vehicle with an open container. And it would have been bad enough if it had just ended there. But what would happen next would go down as one of the worst celebrity implosions of all time. According to the arrest report, and later confirmed by Gibson himself, Gibson was a drunken mess and would go on to say, the Jews are responsible for all the wars in the world. And of course, Mel Gibson would publicly apologize for all of this. He called it despicable behavior, saying that the comments were blurted out in a moment of insanity. He would enter a treatment program to deal with his long history of alcohol abuse and unstable mental health. He even went on to meet with prominent Jewish leaders to discuss and ask for forgiveness. And this incident would introduce the world to the phrase sugar tits 
as Gibson reportedly called one of the officers this name. And of course, years later, Ricky Gervais had a very fun time with this one. What the f does sugar even mean? Oh, that's the guy that said it. It wasn't me. But yeah, this is awful, horrible. The damage was done. Gibson was as close to a Hollywood untouchable as you could get, and yet one horrible decision saw all that crumble instantly. He became persona non grata in Hollywood, not appearing in or working on a film for the next four years. Understandably so. Not good, Mel Gibson, very, very bad. I'm surprised you haven't heard about me. You know, I got a bad reputation. I mean, sometimes I just go nuts like now. <laughs> so yeah, let's flash forward to the year 2010, where Mel Gibson would make his triumphant return to the big screen, starring in the adaptation of the British series Edge of Darkness. Critical reception of the film was mixed, with most everyone praising Mel Gibson's performance as a welcome return for the actor, while calling the film as a whole a bit too familiar. The film would pull in $80.1 million worldwide, but the budget was $80 million. And yeah, not everybody was ready to see Mel Gibson on the screen again, but this was a good first step. Mel Gibson seemed to be primed for a big comeback, but his demons came back in full force. After his divorce from his first wife, Mel Gibson thought he had found love again. Although that all came crashing down when Mel Gibson was recorded by his then-girlfriend in the now-infamous phone call where Mel Gibson used horrific racial slurs while screaming at the woman. The woman was granted a restraining order against Gibson, as well as Gibson being granted a restraining order against the woman. The two parties would eventually reach a settlement by way of a West plea which allowed Mel Gibson to maintain his innocence while getting things over with. He says he would have loved to fully prove his innocence on the domestic abuse charge, but he didn't want to drag his family through such a public circus. But it already kind of was a circus. But yeah, the damage was done. Hollywood's once golden boy was no longer so squeaky clean. It seemed like everybody was kinda ready to forgive and forget. But when this stuff came out, it seemed like Mel Gibson still had a few more lessons to learn, and Hollywood turned its back on Mel Gibson once again. Understandably so. Thank you, Your Honor, and thank you for the court's accommodation. One person who stuck by Mel Gibson through all of this was his Maverick co-star and good friend Jodie Foster. The two of them went and made a movie called The Beaver, prior to the domestic abuse allegations, and this forced the film to be shelved for a year, while the studio figured out how they were gonna release a movie in the wake of this controversy. The Beaver received mixed reviews. While most critics praised Jodie Foster's direction and Mel Gibson's all-in performance, they simply couldn't get past the absurd plot. Some people were quick to point out the similarities between Gibson's real life and that of his character, which made it really hard to separate what was happening on screen with what was happening in his real life. Plus, there's a fucking beaver on his hand. The film The Beaver was a massive financial failure, pulling in less than a million dollars domestically. But yeah, at this time, most people were not ready to watch a Mel Gibson movie yet. Plus, it's called The Beaver. But later that year, he made Get the Gringo. Mel Gibson would soon find himself in starring roles by producing and writing Get the Gringo. Mel Gibson would play that gringo. Critical reception of the film was mostly positive, with critics saying that the film represented a return to form for Mel Gibson, playing a funny, psychopathic, sharp-thinking outsider. It's a wild ride, and it's unlike any prison film I've ever seen. You should see this one. With Mel Gibson's public fall from grace, he had to start taking vastly different roles than what he was used to early on in his career. Enter Machete Kills. In a move to perhaps embrace his public persona, he played a villain for the first time ever in his career. And Robert Rodriguez wrote this part specifically for Mel Gibson. But it only made like $17 million on a $20 million budget. 
But yeah, it was a really smart move to play the bad guy, making it a little easier for audiences to accept him, and eventually learning to love him again. Then came the year 2014. Sylvester Stallone says that he loves offering roles to people in The Expendables who have experienced lulls in their career and are need in some sort of comeback. One could say that there is no better star that fits that description than Mel Gibson, who would again embrace his public persona by playing a bad guy for the second time in his career. In The Expendables 3, it's the third one. Stallone even offered Mel Gibson a chance to direct the film, but he declined. And OMG, could you imagine if Mel Gibson directed an Expendables movie? That would be like, so intense. Like, come on, Mel, do it. But many people do say that this is the worst of the Expendables movies. Although the film did pull in a respectable $214 million at the box office. Then Mel Gibson would star in Bloodfather in 2016. Critical reception of the film was very favorable, saying that the film not only delivers but exceeds all expectations. And everybody praised Mel Gibson's no-nonsense performance. Yeah, this film really gave him a chance to show everybody that he still gots it. He still gots the goods. Bloodfather premiered at the Cannes Film Festival and was released by Lionsgate, but only made $6.9 million off a $15 million budget. After his drunken tirade in 2006 and his legal troubles in 2010, Mel Gibson kept it mostly close to the vest, knowing that his reputation in Hollywood needed a rest if it could ever return to what it once was. With Gibson's experience in making violent faith-based epics like Passion of the Christ, he was the natural choice for the producers to approach him to tell the true story of Desmond Doss a World War II combat medic who refused to carry a weapon because of his faith and ended up saving over 75 men during the bloody battle of Okinawa. But Mel Gibson originally turned down the offer to direct this movie, Hacksaw Ridge, but eventually he came around to it and took on the epic, as only Mel Gibson could. Hacksaw Ridge would be another massive hit for director Mel Gibson, with $180 million grossed globally off a $40 million budget. And those battle scenes, they are probably the best filmed since Saving Private Ryan. But yeah, the battle sequences, they are so intense, I, I wouldn't even call them action sequences, I would call them horror sequences. Hacksaw Ridge received overwhelmingly positive reviews, with many hailing it as a modern-day masterpiece. It was called a brilliant return for Mel Gibson. Audiences and critics alike seem to fully embrace this film and Mel Gibson once again, hoping that his demons were all behind him. And then to show that Hollywood was fully ready to bring back Mel Gibson in full force again, he was nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards, which is something I truly thought was impossible. But hey, they forgave Roman Polanski, so why not Mel, I guess? And of course, Mel Gibson would pick up Best Director nominations at several other big-time award shows, and he would receive the ever-important Golden Redeemer Award at the Razzies. Mel Gibson was back with a truly great film about a truly great man. Then Mel Gibson did something completely unexpected, which is so Mel Gibson, and joined the cast of Daddy's Home 2. With Mel Gibson back in everyone's good graces, well, not Seth Rogen's, it was time for him to take on the next logical step, and that was a Christmas-themed family comedy starring Mark Wahlberg and Will Ferrell. And just one year removed from receiving his Golden Redeemer Award at the Razzies, he would win worst supporting actor for Daddy's Home 2. And I actually saw Daddy's Home 2, and you know what, it's fun. 
it is what it is. And I was actually really worried that I would fall behind because I actually haven't seen Daddy's Home 1, but you know what? I was able to keep up with the plot. Gibson, as well as the rest of the cast, they look like they're having a good time. It's just one of those feel-good comedies to watch around Christmas. Because, you know, there aren't enough of those. But yeah, those pesky critics, well, they disagree with me. Because the film received some pretty horrible reviews. But yeah, I don't care what they say. The cast is hilarious. Just this group of people standing in a room is funny to me. Like, why are they all in this movie? But yeah, it seems like most audiences actually agree with me. Because I'm always right. And the film received an A- cinema score. And took in a pretty solid $180 million. <laughs> Then, Mel Gibson would play a slightly different type of cop than he's known for in the S. Craig Zoller written and directed extremely violent corrupt cop drama called Dragged Across Concrete, starring alongside his Hacksaw Ridge buddy Vince Vaughn. And yeah, I don't know if any of y'all have seen any films by S. Craig Zoller, but this guy, he is making waves in the modern cinema movement right now, if you realize it or not. Every single one of his movies has been a frickin' masterpiece. Bone Tomahawk, Brawl and Cell Block 99, and this one, Dragged Across Concrete, like Mel Gibson and S. Craig Zoller, it's the perfect team to make another ultra-violent masterpiece. And yeah, the studio actually wanted the director to cut a theatrically friendly version, but no, he has final cut and he refused to cut it. So Lionsgate was forced to give it a limited theatrical release. But yeah, Mel Gibson, S. Craig Zoller, they're badasses and nobody f***s with their films. Dragged Across Concrete received solid reviews from critics who appreciated the slow burn of the story. And Mel Gibson was again praised for his grim performance. But yeah, this film, these actors, this director, all together, they look PC culture in the face and just say, F*** you, you f***ing f***ing So yeah, Dragged Across Concrete, watch it. Mel Gibson would then produce and star in the riveting story about the formation of the Oxford English Dictionary. In a movie called The Professor and the Madman, Mel Gibson would play the professor and Sean Penn would play the madman, even though they're both madmen. There were lots of lawsuits surrounding this film, and Mel Gibson and the director have both distanced themselves from the film, calling it a bitter disappointment. But I hear some people like it, I don't know. Are you some of those people who like it? Comment your comment in the comments. Then, in the year 2020, everybody's favorite year, there was a movie called Force of Nature. Everybody's favorite movie. This time, Mel Gibson made a direct-to-video dud. It's a film that looks like he kinda needed a paycheck. But I haven't seen it, I don't know. Gibson would next be seen taking on the role that he was destined to play, Chris or as he's better known, Santa Claus. In the extremely R-rated and the extremely awesome new Christmas classic, Fat Man. It's just a weird, violent, awesome Christmas movie about a hitman trying to kill Santa. Movies don't get cooler than that. This is a bizarre, out of control, unbelievable movie that handles its plot in a very down-to-earth kind of way, actually. Which is so unexpected that it's perfect. It's simple and it's cheap, but in a good way. Then in this current year, right now, 2021, Mel Gibson was in a movie called Boss Level. And this film is being described as Groundhog's Day meets John Wick, which is an amazing combination. And yeah, Boss Level, people seem to be liking it. Praising the performances all around and saying that Mel Gibson's demented villainous role as the boss is truly amazing. But yeah, the question is, has Mel Gibson made a comeback? Or has he been officially cancelled forever? I mean, recently he did salute Donald Trump at the Thunderdome, and I hear that's a big no-no in Hollywood. But still, he's not 100% cancelled. Like, nothing, nothing takes this guy down. And even Winona Ryder recently brought up that she allegedly witnessed Mel Gibson making some off-color jokes about AIDS and Jewish people at a party in the 90s, but that really didn't seem to stir the pot that much. 
it kind of felt like old news, like everybody seemed to quickly forget and just move on. But Mel Gibson has denied all of that. But yeah, so like I said, they can't cancel him no matter what he seems to do or be accused of. In fact, he has nine projects currently in various stages of production. One of those is a possible Wild Bunch remake, which you shouldn't remake the Wild Bunch, but if anyone's gonna do it, Mel Gibson should. And a film about the Rothschild family. And I'm sure Mel Gibson will have an interesting take on that if you know anything about the Rothschild family. And there's even talk of another Lethal Weapon movie, which I would totally be down for, but after the sad passing of director Richard Donner, it just doesn't feel right to do it without him. But what do I know? And there has been a rumored sequel to The Passion of the Christ. But yeah, a sequel to Passion of the Christ, you know, for, for those of you who are wondering what happened after the crucifixion. So yeah, Mel Gibson. The guy had one of the biggest self-implosions in Hollywood history, and the fact that he has weathered the storm and come back is a true testament to his talent. And if you read about Mel Gibson's work over the years, you will notice one thing. He is constantly receiving high praise for the work that he puts out. And the dude has been giving millions to charities for years. Even after Mel Gibson became a punching bag by his own fault, the work still prevailed, when it would be very easy to just dismiss everything associated with this man, the level of talent displayed by Mel Gibson is impossible to ignore. The man has his demons, alcoholism is no joke, and neither is mental health and depression. And with those demons, sometimes you do and say things that you regret. And Mel Gibson, he may be the king of f***ing up. But as an artist, he's in a league of his own. When Mel Gibson steps behind the camera, it's an event. And when he is in front of it, even if the film isn't a grand slam, Mel Gibson still knocks it out of the park every time. Whether he's on the battlefield, in a crop circle, or in a chicken coop, Mel Gibson always delivers. But they'll never take all freedom! And you know what? It's not really up to me to judge Mel Gibson, or anybody, but I'll judge his films though, and they're fantastic. And you know what, what do I know, but the guy seems to be legitimately sorry, and has tried to make things better. Even Robert Downey Jr. says it's time to forgive. He's hugged the cactus long enough. And I don't know the man personally, so I can't say. But I will say that those without sin can cast the first stone. Or Rotten Tomato. Thank you for watching our show. If you like what you see, please subscribe to our Joe Blow Videos channel. Tell your friends who like this sort of content and turn on the bell to receive notifications for all of our latest videos. We're an independent company and we appreciate all your support.